Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Mandy. How are you? I am doing awesome. Just freshly home from vacation. I got to go see my family and spend some time in snow, which I'm sure doesn't sound that great to people who are in the middle of winter (laughs) who live in (laughs) snow right now. But it was a really nice change of pace for a few days. We didn't go for a full week, just five days. But yeah, it was really nice. I am happy to be home in Florida where it is nice and warm. Not today. It's a little chilly today. Don't tell people how cold that is. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but it is nice. But yeah, I had such a great time and I like going away in the winter and being able to see wintry stuff and then coming back home to Florida and not having to actually deal with the wintry stuff. So yeah, I'm doing doing great this week. (laughs) We have Florida. We have to deal with our Florida thing. So just let us have this, people up north. Let us just (laughs) visit you and we'll come home. (laughs) Absolutely. So we're going to get pretty much right into the episode this week. We have kind of a lot to unpack in this case. I know sometimes we do a little disclaimer in the beginning when we have an episode that is particularly gruesome or maybe a little bit outside of what we typically talk about on our show. And this is one of those weeks that we have one of those stories. So if you are listening with kids in the car or nearby, this probably is not one that you want to continue until you're by yourself and you can just spend time with us alone. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. But something along those lines. So yeah, this episode is a little bit there is some more mature content in this episode and definitely not one that you want to listen to around little ears, I would say. So this week's story is about the murder and violation of an 18-year-old young woman and the story takes place in Mayfield, Kentucky. Before we get into the details of the story, we're going to tell you a little about Mayfield in this week's segment of We Googled This City. Mayfield, Kentucky has a population of around 10,000 residents as of the 2010 U.S. Census. According to my memory, tell me if I'm wrong, Mandy, we haven't done any other Google the cities in Kentucky. Does not sound familiar to me or any cases here that I can think of. No, I can't think of any either. Yeah. So I'm going to broaden this to include Kentucky so we can get a few more fun facts. So here's your chance. If you hate Google this city, do me a favor and fast forward this for two minutes. I will put a timer on. It's going to be a whole thing. You'll be set. Don't worry. So here we go. Starting now. So Fort Knox is located in Kentucky, and it's where more than $6 billion worth of gold is held underground its vaults, and it's the largest amount of gold that is stored anywhere in the world. And here's a fun fact that has nothing to do with anything but our friendship, Mandy. Whenever you and I were first friends in our mom's group, that mom's group we were in, um, you told me about your Facebook page, and so I went to it, and I couldn't see your friends, your age, your location, nothing. And I said, wow, your page is really secure. And you said, yeah, it's Fort Knox. And I thought, wow, she's really funny. She's not lame as the other people that are in this group. Can I say that? Is that okay to say? (laughs) But I was like, oh, she's going to be my friend. Perfect. So I love that that's that's like such a nerdy thing. But I really like anytime I see Fort Knox, I think of you. So um, cheeseburgers, glorious cheeseburgers, cheesy patties of meat on bread. They were first served in this restaurant called Kaolin's in Louisville, Kentucky in 1934, which the older I get and the older you get, maybe, I don't think the 30s seems like it was that long ago, but (laughs) I can't quite decide what people were emotionally eating before that, like vegetables, were people crying into their broccoli? What did you do without cheeseburgers? Did they just deal with their feelings? I don't really think any of that's going to work for me. I got to hurry before I get to the two minutes. Lastly, the song Happy Birthday was actually the brainchild of two sisters named Mildred and Patty Hill. They were teachers, and they used to sing a Good Morning to You song to their students, which translated into Happy Birthday. And so if you've noticed on TV and stuff for years, you don't hear Happy Birthday because there's all these copyright issues. And they're actually way more complicated than I can even understand. It's like you can use it, but you can't. And then one year, like everyone was dead in their family, and so you could use it again. So I'm going to put a link to the show notes. You have to read the story. I think there should be an HBO special on it. It's super interesting. But lastly, Mandy, my two minutes are almost up. So if you guys will hold with me for just one second, I just have to say that I'm not a hero. I just saved five people and their dogs from a car fire today. Mandy, you can get into the episode now. Does anybody understand what I did there? (laughs) Do you understand what I did there at all? If people fast forwarded it two minutes because they hated Google the city, then they would just hear me saying that I like save people from a car. And then it would sound like I was cool and they'd think, wow, what did I miss? But they didn't miss me. I had to practice so much to get that timed right and it didn't even work. I give up. They're right. It's terrible. I hate it. Just go. 
On the morning of August 1st, 2000, at 9.30, a teacher at Mayfield Middle School made a horrifying discovery while walking around the campus. The badly burned and decomposing remains of a young woman were found on the lawn behind the school. Near the body was a large clump of hair that appeared to have come from the victim, as well as a badly burned black braided leather belt next to the victim's body. Police were called to the scene, and a Mayfield police officer named Tim Fortner was assigned to the case as the lead investigator. Tim Fortner was, at this time, a relatively new detective, and this was actually the very first homicide case he had ever been assigned to. Having an inexperienced lead investigator would end up being the first of many problems that would later arise in the investigation into this murder. Officer Fortner said in his own words, quote, I didn't have a clue what to do after having arrived at the crime scene. I had no idea how to organize a crime scene or look for forensic evidence, end quote. One place they did have to start was with identifying the victim, which didn't take very long once the news broke that a body had been discovered. The city fire chief, Joe Curran, and his wife, Jean, showed up at the police station to inquire about the body that had been discovered behind the middle school. They said that their 18-year-old daughter, Jessica Curran, had been missing for about two days, and they were concerned after learning of the shocking discovery. The couple was taken to view the body, which they sadly were able to identify as Jessica based on jewelry and clothing. After Jessica was identified by her parents, the state medical examiner, Dr. Mark Levon, performed an autopsy. Dental records confirmed that the remains were that of Jessica Curran, and her cause of death was found to be strangulation by the belt found next to her body. Jessica's remains were badly burned and deteriorated, which made it more difficult, if not impossible, to observe any other physical clues about what could have happened to her. At the time of her autopsy, the medical examiner stated that there were no physical signs of rape that could be observed because of the condition of the body. Jessica's friends and family mourned her loss, and her funeral was held on August 5th, 2000. Jessica Melissa Curran was born on November 29th, 1981 in Mayfield. According to Jessica's parents, she was a wonderful daughter who had an outgoing personality and really loved to be a part of their family and helped wherever she could. She helped organize holiday meals, snapped photos at family get-togethers, and recorded her brother's events. Although Jessica was a pretty quiet person, she was very friendly and easy to get along with. She was described as being decent and nice, and her father said that she was, quote, a champion for the underdog. Jessica attended Graves County High School, although she did not graduate after becoming pregnant when she was 17 and leaving school to care for her new baby. In December of 1999, Jessica gave birth to a baby boy named Zion Tayshan. She took well to motherhood, and multiple people really commented about what a great mother she was. In the summer of 2000, Jessica began working towards getting her GED with a goal of being able to enroll in the local community college that fall. In mid-July of 2000, Jessica moved out of her parents' house and into her own apartment on the southeast side of the city. Jessica's parents were pretty upset about this, and they really begged her not to move out. But Jessica told them that she had recently learned that the man that she believed was Zion's father had taken a paternity test, which revealed that the seven-month-old boy was not his. She believed that Zion's father could be a man named Jeremy Adams, and his name's going to come up again later in the story. Jessica said that finding out about this paternity test really upset her and that this was the reason she was moving out. Her parents, however, felt that the real reason she wanted to move out was that she didn't really like the curfew that her parents gave her and the list of chores that she was responsible for. Around the same time Jessica moved into her own place, she also began dating a guy named Carlos Lolo Saxton. Their relationship was still very new, but Carlos and Jessica thought they had something really special, and Carlos thought that Jessica was the type of girl that he'd want to marry one day. And you'll hear the name Carlos again later in the story as well. On July 29th, 2000, Jessica told her mom that she'd like to invite some friends over to her new apartment to hang out for the evening and asked if her mother would be willing to babysit her seven-month-old son. Jessica dropped Zion off at her parents' house and told them that they could come pick her up in the morning and she would attend church with them. The next morning, Jessica's parents arrived to pick her up, but there was nobody home. They assumed that Jessica had just gone somewhere with her friends, and her parents went on to church with the baby and decided that they would just check up on Jessica later. That Sunday evening, they returned to Jessica's apartment only to find that it was still empty, and they went back the next morning and the next evening as well, but Jessica was never there. 
Her parents were getting concerned, and they thought that, at the very least, it was strange that Jessica wouldn't have called to check on her son. But Jessica's father didn't think there was anything the police could do, so he did not call them for help. It was the following day, August 1st, that Jessica's remains were found. As we mentioned in the beginning of the story, the investigation to Jessica's murder started off on a bad foot when a rookie detective who had never worked a homicide case before was assigned as the lead investigator. Without having really any evidence to back it up, Officer Fortner began heavily focusing on one particular person as a suspect, and that was the possible father of Jessica's son, Jeremy Adams. There was very little investigation in the early hours and days following this crime. In fact, there was a strange situation that occurred on the morning of July 30th, which was the day after Jessica was last seen alive. And this is something that really should have been investigated further, but it wasn't. That morning, a Graves County deputy sheriff named Mike Perkins spotted a deputy jailer pushing a blue car on the side of the road. So he pulled over to see if they needed any help, and he learned that the driver of the car, a man who was named Quincy Cross, had run out of gas, and the deputy jailer happened to see Cross on the side of the road trying to pour gas into his car, spilling it all over himself, and decided that he would stop and lend him a hand. Evidently, Cross had mentioned to this deputy jailer that he was worried that he would be charged in Jessica's murder because he smelled like gasoline. This was a really weird thing to bring up to this deputy jailer since Jessica's body had not been found at that point and nobody even knew that she had been lit on fire. When Deputy Perkins showed up, he observed a gas can in the backseat of the car and noticed that Cross had gas spilled on his pants, which were actually the only thing that he was even wearing. He did not have on a shirt, shoes, or a belt, and the car that he was driving did not belong to him. After looking through the car, Cross was arrested for being in possession of cocaine. Police learned that Cross had been at a party in South Mayfield on the previous night, which was July 29th. They interviewed a few of the partygoers who told them that Cross had been at the party and he was seen twirling his belt around all evening and that he borrowed the blue car at around 5 or 5.30 in the morning because he claimed that he wanted to go visit his sister. For some odd reason, police did not look any further into Quincy Cross and no other potential leads were really investigated. Weeks after the mysterious killing, there was a $10,000 reward out for any information regarding Jessica's murder. And we're going to get into the first leads that the detectives looked into after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Beautiful skin doesn't come from makeup. It comes from taking care of your skin. And what better way to have healthy, beautiful skin than by using skincare that believes the same, which is Glossier. You may know Glossier as the company that popularized the glowy, dewy skin look. They are actually a community-driven beauty brand that offers products inspired by the people that use them. Glossier actually cares what their community is looking for. And back in 2015, they asked their community... What's your dream face wash? Over the next year, they took the hundreds of responses they received and used them as inspiration to create the Milky Jelly Cleanser, which is one of Glossier's top-selling products. I have absolutely loved the Milky Jelly Cleanser because it easily washes away excess oil, dirt, and makeup. Plus, it's really great on all skin types, and it's gentle on my eyes, which is great because I forget my eyes are there until I'm rubbing cleaner all over them. Plus, the Milky Jelly Cleanser is made of a creamy, luxurious gel formula that feels great not only going on, but also being rinsed off. Get that glowy, dewy skin for yourself by visiting Glossier.com slash podcast slash moms. Learn more and take the quiz to find your ultimate Glossier skincare routine. Plus, all new customers will get 10% off their first order on Glossier.com slash podcast slash moms. Again, that's Glossier, spelled G-L-O-S-S-I-E-R dot com slash podcast slash moms. Certain exclusions apply. For the past month, my daughter has been obsessed with playing Foursquare. So we spend every afternoon playing after school. I put on my Bombas, my tennis shoes, and head outside and hope to beat an 11-year-old. Although I continue to lose every single day, it's not because I'm constantly pulling up a bunched up sock, because Bombas are actually designed with left-right contouring in a Y-stitched heel, so they stay perfectly in place. I lose all the time because I'm awful at it. While Bombas doesn't help me beat my daughter in Foursquare, they do keep my feet cool, dry, and comfortable, and never sweaty thanks to their lightweight poly cotton blend. 
Whether you're very into sports or planning on getting very into sports, Bombas can help with performance socks and styles made specifically for basketball, tennis, running, golf, and more. I love that I can wear my Bombas, stay comfortable, and focus on whatever workout I'm doing that day and not on an annoying sock getting stuck in my shoe or sweaty feet. Plus, when you buy a pair of Bombas, Bombas actually donates a pair to someone in need, which is an amazing thing since socks are actually the number one most requested item in homeless shelters. Go to bombas.com slash moms and murder today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S.com slash moms and murder for 20% off. Bombas.com slash moms and murder. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about how Quincy Cross had been briefly investigated in the murder of Jessica Curran, but there's really no follow-up despite his story for the night of the murder being pretty suspicious, and there was this $10,000 reward for any information about the case. In October of 2000, almost two months after the murder, police arrested an unknown female juvenile in connection with the murder. Since this person was a minor, their name was never published, but she was charged with hindering prosecution and apprehension and criminal facilitation to commit murder. Then, in early 2001, police received a new tip from three inmates at the McCracken County Jail. These inmates claimed that they had spoken with Jeremy Adams, who was the possible father of Jessica Curran's son, and he allegedly told them about Jessica's murder while he was incarcerated there on unrelated drug charges. They said that Adams had admitted his guilt and claimed that Carlos Saxton, who was Jessica's new boyfriend at the time of her death, was his accomplice. Although investigators could find no physical evidence to prove that Adams had anything to do with it, the 20-year-old was indicted for murder on February 14, 2001. He was also charged with tampering with physical evidence and abuse of a corpse. According to police, Jessica was walking alone on July 29th before meeting up with Adams and going to the middle school with him. They alleged that he then killed Jessica there with Saxton's help. Two days later, 20-year-old Carlos Saxton was arrested for complicity in the murder. While Adams was behind bars, he underwent a psychological evaluation, which revealed that he had, quote, polysubstance dependence, antisocial personality disorder, and an IQ of 87. Polysubstance dependence is an addiction to being intoxicated. It doesn't matter what you're intoxicated by. It can be alcohol, drugs, anything. So as prosecutors worked to build their case against these two young men, it became more and more obvious that there was absolutely no physical evidence that linked either of them to the murder. The prosecution eventually admitted that their entire case was based solely on what the three inmates had told them. Adams' attorneys offered up an explanation for what the three inmates could have been talking about by saying that in the beginning, the police showed Adams these photos of the crime scene in an attempt to really shock him into an admission, and that he told the three inmates about that experience, but not that he had actually been the one to commit the murder. Nevertheless, the state continued to pursue their case against Adam and Saxon. In June of 2001, nearly a year after the murder, things started moving along a little bit more. Police received another anonymous tip that a white car was actually associated with Jessica's murder. And then later in June, right in the middle of this investigation, both the police chief and the assistant chief of Mayfield entered Alfred pleas to felonies of personal use of city funds and misuse of property, and they were both put in a diversion program. So this is kind of the first of like... The crazy to me, the first of the really like bonkers things that happens in this story. I mean, you start with the investigator who's brand new on this case, but then just kind of pay attention how this all trickles down. It's Mandy and I were talking about this before we recorded. It's one of the most upsetting cases I've heard in terms of like all the pieces that were just going wrong the entire time through the entire thing where you just your head's just kind of spinning. And it's just one thing after another in this case. It's like, and all of these things are so upsetting, like on their own, like, oh, you know, that would, there, all of these things are things that would set a case back, but it's like every single thing that could go wrong in this investigation and leading up to finding out what happened in this case, it's like everything that could go wrong did in this case. And yeah, it's just super, super upsetting to watch, like you said, how it all trickles down, like from the start all the way right. to the very end of the story. In July of 2001, Circuit Judge John Daude ruled that Adams and Saxton would be tried separately. Over the next two years, these trials were postponed and rescheduled several times, and on February 12th of 2003, the judge ended up dismissing the charges against Adams, and he said, quote, I have never seen a case so encumbered with problems, and I hope I never see another one. 
He decided to dismiss all the charges against Adams after finding that Tim Fortner, who had at this point been promoted to the assistant police chief, had failed and refused to provide the defense with 18 to 20 video and audio tapes. The judge was so fed up and he said that he was, quote, pretty close to putting Fortner in jail for not cooperating with the trial process and refusing to give evidence to the defense. That's such a big statement for him to make, because when do you ever hear this? But somebody's literally saying I he has all this information and will not give it things that could change the entire case. What? I don't get that. I just don't understand right. unless you're trying to fit a narrative and you want to make a, a whole thing work. It, it's scary. It's so scary to think that something like that could go on. It's really scary. And so the evidence that was on these tapes in question contained footage of a female juvenile admitting to killing Jessica. Wow. And the police claimed that they didn't believe this young lady. And that's why they didn't want to give these tapes to the defense, which, like you said, that is so just terrible because it's not just up to the police right. to decide if this is true or false. This is why we have trials and this is why we have attorneys that can build cases based on all of these little things that they find. And by withholding that information, like, yeah, that's a really big deal. And I can completely understand why the judge said we're just going to drop these charges because there nothing is going right in this case. So also among the problems with evidence in this case was that the clump of hair that was found near Jessica's body was mysteriously missing, and someone had also thrown away the dress that Jessica was wearing when she was murdered. The medical examiner recalled the police telling him that the dress had been partially burned and was covered in maggots and said that the police said that they, quote, didn't want it. Shortly after the charges against Adams were dropped, the charges against both Saxton and the first unknown female juvenile that was arrested were also dropped. A week after charges against Adams and Saxton were dismissed, Jessica's murder case left the Mayfield PD and was given to the Kentucky State Police. A few months later, in May of 2003, Police Chief Tim Fortner resigned from his position, although he said it had nothing to do with the Jessica Curran murder. A new police chief named Joel Natividad was Fortner's replacement. But after a month in this position, he also resigned and stated that it wasn't because of the current case. Jessica's father, Joe, though, did everything he could to keep Jessica's story alive and in the news. He held protests at local, state, and federal offices. He visited the Paducah FBI office and drove 250 miles to the Kentucky Capitol on his quest to get justice for his daughter, Jessica. Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network even got involved in the case. Months passed without any movement in the case. Police still had no hard evidence to tie any particular person to the crime, and in March of 2004, there was another blunder in the case. $9,000 of the $10,000 in reward money for information was actually mistakenly spent, but promised to be replaced. Just, I just want to scream the entire time. I just want to scream. I can't imagine being the family of Jessica. You're just, every step of the way, it's just a cluster the entire time. Yeah, it's horrifying to think that this kind of thing could happen if something terrible like this happens to your child or your family member. It's terrifying to think that their case could be mishandled, you know, in this way or that so many things could go wrong because really all you're trying to do is, you know, find out what happened right. and put the people responsible for it behind bars, let them have their day in court. But yeah, it's just terrible and it's so frustrating for them that just these types of things keep happening. I mean, how does that even happen? How do you mistakenly spend $9,000 of money that is for a reward for a case that is still active and still you're putting resources at trying to solve it? It just makes no sense to me. Like how, how would that even happen? Right. And then surprisingly, it just keeps getting worse. So also in 2004, Joe Kern was able to talk to the new attorney general, Greg Stumbo, and he asked him to please start to look into the murder. And in 2006, the Kentucky Bureau of Investigation took over the case. After this happened, it would be another 20 months before anything at all happened for this investigation. On December 15, 2005, Jessica's body was exhumed so that a second autopsy could be conducted. They did find, quote, new useful evidence, end quote, but at the time they did not say what it was. In the years that had since passed since Jessica's murder, unbeknownst to the police at the time, there was a citizen named Susan Galbraith who had been doing some amateur sleuthing of her own after being captivated by the case and being really unable to forget it. As it would turn out, Susan would eventually play a huge role in the new investigation of the murder. 
In April of 2004, Susan had sent an email to Tom Mangold, who was a senior BBC reporter, and she had seen him on the TV on the BBC's version of 60 Minutes. So she met with Tom and told him of Jessica's story, and the two of them started to investigate the case together. The more they dug into the story, the more they kept hearing the same name coming up over and over again, and it was Quincy Cross, who was the young man that investigators had failed to follow up on after they found him broke down on the side of the road with no shirt or shoes, covered in gasoline, the morning after Jessica was last seen. Susan and Tom pleaded with the police to look further into Cross, but they really brushed them off and pretty much ignored them. So Tom Mangold eventually went home, but Susan refused to give up on this theory and set out to prove that Cross was in fact responsible for Jessica's murder. In February of 2005, Susan told police that she was going to actually meet Quincy Cross under the disguise of being an author who was researching Jessica's murder. She wore a wire to the interview which the police had actually asked her to do, but they didn't get a whole lot out of Quincy. He was really quiet and he didn't have a lot to say, but he did ask Susan if the police had any DNA evidence in this case. Although the interview didn't really reveal anything incriminating, Susan still left feeling that Cross was the killer. So when the Kentucky Bureau of Investigation took over the case, she was really excited to give them the information that she had collected. A few months after turning over the evidence that she had, she created a MySpace page called Justice for Jessica in hopes that someone out there would see the page and send in a tip. And in February 2007, she finally got that tip. A woman by the name of Victoria Caldwell had left a comment on the page that said, quote, I will help the police as much as I can, but I really don't know who to trust. I am afraid someone might kill me if I testify to things about this case. Can you help me? End quote. So Susan wasted no time getting in touch with Victoria and setting up a meeting. By this time, Victoria was living in California. Keep in mind, this is now years after the murder has taken place. When the two finally met, Victoria told Susan that not only did she have information about the case, but that she had actually witnessed Jessica's murder herself. This was the first time anyone had ever come forward claiming to have firsthand knowledge of what happened. What was worse was that according to Victoria, there were numerous other witnesses to the murder as well. So this admission lit a fire under the state police who were investigating, and they sent officers to California to speak to Victoria themselves. The story that Victoria told the police was both shocking and incredibly disturbing. And a reminder, this is really gruesome, really horrific, the story that she tells. And we'll get into a lot of it after, but you know, if your kids have snuck into the room, now's a good time to usher them away. So Victoria stated that she was just 15 years old in 2000, the year that Jessica was murdered. She said that Jessica and another friend, Venetia Stubblefield, came over to Victoria's house on the night of July 29th, 2000. Venetia said that they were getting ready to go hang out with Quincy Cross, and Victoria decided to also go hang out with him. The three girls, Victoria, who was 15, Venetia, who was 17, and Jessica, who was 18, all got into Cross's car and drove to another house. Cross left his blue car at this house and picked up a different car, a white one, and the four drove to pick up Victoria's cousin Tamara Caldwell and a man named Jeff Burton. The car was loaded down with six people at this point, and Cross offered everyone some cocaine while they drove to Jeff Burton's home. It was on this car ride that Victoria said that things went down really quickly. She alleges that Quincy Cross and Tamara Caldwell began sexually harassing and making physical advances at Jessica. Jessica told them to stop, but the harassment continued and her protesting actually aggravated Cross. When they arrived at Jeff Burton's house, Cross used a mini baseball bat that was in his car to hit Jessica in the head, causing her to lose consciousness. At that point, the two men in the group, Cross and Burton, carried Jessica to a bedroom where they proceeded to assault and rape her with the help of Tamara Caldwell, who allegedly held Jessica down. As Jessica started to regain consciousness, she started crying out her son's name, which further irritated Cross. He picked up a wrench and allegedly hit her in the head a second time. And just a reminder, this is all one person's uh, confession. This is one person who's saying what's happening in this situation. So as Jessica laid unconscious on the bed, Cross then removed his belt and strangled her to death. After Jessica was murdered, Cross then ordered everyone in the group to do different things to implicate themselves in the murder. Multiple people were told to perform sex acts on Jessica's body. 
In the hours after Jessica was killed, the rest of the people in the house continued to take more drugs, and allegedly they all began having sex with each other. In the early morning hours of the following day, Jessica's body was wrapped in a blanket and taken into Jeff Burton's garage. When the odors of decomposition began to set in, Victoria, Venetia, Jeff Burton, and two other guys named Austin Leach and Isaac Benjamin took Jessica's body to the middle school and set it on fire. This confession from Victoria led police to track down Venetia Stubblefield for questioning. Venetia's story to the police was much the same as the one that Victoria had given with just a few different details included. She stated that she and Jessica had been playing cards at a friend's apartment on July 29th, but at some point Jessica decided that she wanted to go home and started to walk there, which wasn't really an uncommon thing to see in a small town like Mayfield. People actually walked alone at night all the time, and this was a very safe community that really had seen less than a handful of homicides over the last several years leading up to this case. Venetia said that after a little while, she wanted to go find Jessica, so Quincy Cross picked her up in the blue car, and then they went and picked up Victoria, and she said that it was after they switched cars from the blue one to the white one that they drove around looking for Jessica while doing cocaine, taking pills, and smoking marijuana. Venetia said that when they finally found Jessica, they asked her if she wanted a ride, and Jessica said that she did want a ride, but she just wanted to be taken to her house and nothing else. She did not want to go anywhere else. However, as soon as she was in the car, Cross began sexually harassing her. This escalated into a verbal argument, which ended when Cross hit her over the head with the baseball bat. The rest of the story from Venetia's point of view was pretty much the same as what Victoria had told them. Venetia confirmed that multiple people from the group took turns sexually assaulting Jessica both before and after her death. Venetia also told police that she had lit the match and had thrown it on Jessica's body to start the fire. The stories that Victoria and Venetia gave to the police changed so many times that police began to think they were lying about all of it. Venetia actually went through a 14-hour taped interview, but there is a little bit of question about what was really on these tapes because the recording stops multiple times in the middle, and then when it starts back up, it's like Venetia suddenly remembers new information. So there's a little bit of question about her testimony there. It ended up coming out that Cross and the large group of witnesses were police suspects a few days after the murder. As we mentioned before, they did speak with Cross, but then they let him go and didn't look into him anymore. And Venetia herself was actually questioned by police 17 times following the murder and leading up to her arrest. But she never once mentioned Quincy Cross until 2005 and never said anything about the belt until the officers actually brought it up to her in 2007. The legal journey in this case is really unlike any that I have even seen before, and we're going to get into the details of the trials and the sentencing after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. Leaving the house for any reason isn't particularly wonderful, and it's even worse when you need to drag your kids out of the house to do something that includes no snacks or treats, just standing in line to mail out packages. Thanks to Stamps.com, we can send out all of our Patreon perks and packages from the comfort of our own homes, so there's no lines, no dragging kids out of the house, and best of all, no changing into real pants. With Stamps.com, you can use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail's ready, you just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's really that simple. Stamps.com can also help ease the pain of the increases in postage cost by giving you big discounts off of the post office retail rates. Using Stamps.com has already saved us dozens of hours, and this year will save us even more. If you own your own business, Stamps.com is a no-brainer. Since it not only saves you time, it also saves you money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Moms and Murder. That's Stamps.com, enter Moms and Murder. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? 
Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. On March 30th, 2007, six and a half years after Jessica's murder, Quincy Cross, Jeff Burton, and Tamara Caldwell were all indicted for murder, kidnapping, first-degree rape, abuse of a corpse, and tampering with physical evidence. Victoria Caldwell and Venetia Stubblefield were indicted on charges of abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. In May of 2007, both of those women pled guilty to those charges. Victoria received five years in prison, and Venetia was sentenced to seven. The following year, in July of 2008, the two men who helped dispose of Jessica's body were indicted. Isaac Benjamin and Austin Leach were each charged with two counts of tampering with evidence. Austin was also indicted for one count of perjury after being caught lying at a grand jury hearing earlier in the investigation. At the time of the murder, Isaac was just 14 years old and Austin was 20. Austin was actually acquitted after a seven-day trial in August of 2009. Isaac entered an Alford plea to one count of complicity to tamper with evidence, and as part of that plea, the second charge was dropped. In September of 2008, Jeffrey Burton and Tamara Caldwell entered Alford pleas on charges of second-degree manslaughter and abuse of a corpse. Jeff Burton also entered an Alford plea for tampering with physical evidence. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison, and Tamara was sentenced to 10 years. At the end of his indictment and eventual conviction, Jeff Burton was 27 years old, married, and he had three children. The trial for Quincy Cross began on March 27, 2008, and it was held in Hickman County, which is a different county from where the murder actually took place. At the time of his trial, he was 31 years old. Cross grew up in Tiptonville, Tennessee, in an abusive household. His stepfather was verbally abusive to him and his siblings, and he also abused Cross's mother. Cross left home at a young age and went to take care of his grandmother, who had Alzheimer's. He did not continue his education beyond the ninth grade, and he had a long criminal record, including the first time that he was ever charged for choking a girlfriend who took money from him. During the trial for Jessica's murder, the prosecution alleged that on the night of July 29, 2000, Cross offered Jessica a ride home, which she accepted. He began sexually harassing her and then got angry when she refused his advances, so he rendered her unconscious, raped her, and strangled her and then got other people involved in the crime. He then lit Jessica's body on fire to destroy the evidence. The state's three key witnesses were Venetia Stubblefield, Victoria Caldwell, and a woman named Rose Christ, who was Victoria's sister. One piece of evidence that was presented by the prosecution was a diary entry found in Victoria's diary that read, quote, They found the body, man. I hope they don't find out it was us. End quote. Although the defense argued that this diary entry could have been written at any time and they questioned the validity of it. When it came time for Cross's defense, his attorney stated that the state had gotten it right the first time and that Jeremy Adams and Carlos Saxton were the ones responsible for the murder. The defense also brought up the many lies that Venetia and Victoria had told the police during their interviews and even got the two women to admit on the stand to lying to police. So they argued that the testimony from these women against Cross was really unreliable. Victoria's sister Rose testified for both the defense 
and the prosecution, which is not something you really see very often. And while she was testifying for the prosecution, she stated that Cross was involved in Jessica's murder. But then while she was testifying for the defense, she admitted that everything she told the Kentucky Bureau of Investigation wasn't entirely true and that she didn't know about what Cross had done only that she had lied to the police because investigators threatened to take her kids away. She was later charged with perjury and pleaded guilty to that. I don't understand this at all, even a little bit. I don't understand how you testify for the prosecution and defense and say conflicting things and it's not all thrown out. That doesn't make sense. Well, I don't understand it either. And you would think that one side would take her off once they realized the other side was going to put her on the stand or vice versa, because that doesn't look good for anyone if you put the same person up there and they say conflicting things. I mean, that looks bad all around, it seems to me. Yeah, and the other two girls who have already had multiple stories, so this person's kind of corroborating it, but then she doesn't even have the same story. It is seriously the craziest case I've ever heard. Like, this is making a murderer at a different level to me. It is just the craziest thing. Back to the story. The defense had forensic pathologist Dr. George Nichols testify about the results of Jessica's autopsy, and he said that there was, quote, no medical or scientific evidence that the cause of Jessica's death was strangulation or that Jessica had been raped, end quote. The defense also had multiple people testify that Adams and Saxton were the real perpetrators, and they presented evidence that on the night of the murder, Saxton was wearing the same type of belt that was used to strangle Jessica, on April 8, 2008, it took the jury just three hours to reach a verdict. Quincy Cross was found guilty of murder, kidnapping, and rape. The following day, the jury deliberated for another eight hours over whether or not he should get the death penalty. In the end, he was sentenced to life without parole on the charges of murder, kidnapping, and rape. And he was also sentenced to 50 years for sodomy, five years for abuse of a corpse, and three years for tampering with evidence. Cross attempted to appeal his case several times, and the first few were denied, so he appealed to the United States District Court, Western District of Kentucky, Paducah Division. Say that one time fast. <laughs> Say that just one time. I dare you. It was one of the most difficult sentences of my life. So in his appeal, he alleged that Victoria Venetia and Rosie Kreese, who was Victoria's sister, had all been forced by the police to lie on the stand. Here's more craziness. So years after Cross had been convicted, Victoria Caldwell confessed to Dale Elliott, the Innocence Project investigator, that she had wanted the reward money. So she and Venetia decided to make up a story for the police. And keep in mind, there's all this buzz on Facebook. This lady's got this, you know, post going around asking for more information, talking about a reward. So she decides that she's going to make up a story and tell police. So she said that her testimony at Cross's trial was all staged and had been coached by the Kentucky Bureau of Investigation, specifically agents Lee Wise and Robert O'Neill. Victoria said that she actually had no idea what happened to Jessica or if Cross was even involved, but that she was willing to lie on the stand because she wanted the reward money and because the police had threatened her with taking away her welfare, food stamps, and her child. Dale Elliott then spoke with Victoria's sister, who said the same thing, that she had lied for the money and because she was also feeling threatened by the police. Venetia Stubblefield echoed what the other two women had said, that she had also been intimidated into lying. On October 27, 2014, Jessica's father even signed an affidavit stating that he does not believe Cross is behind his daughter's death and that he has been wrongfully convicted. Joe says that he feels like there were flaws throughout the entire investigation. A hearing was held on October 13, 2016 to see if Cross's claims of innocence were true. The court decided that the new evidence they were trying to present wasn't really new at all, and basically it was just that the testimonies of the three women were lies, but the defense had actually already brought that up at the trial in the first place. So on November 9, 2016, the appeal was denied. All other attempts that Quincy Cross has made at appeal have also been denied, and he is serving his sentence at Luther Luckett Correctional Complex in Kentucky. As for what happened to baby Zion, he was raised by Jessica's parents as their own son and even called them mom and dad. While he was growing up, he was always told that Jessica was his older sister because they wanted to protect him from the truth until he was old enough to understand it. He became an award-winning runner, just like his mom, and eventually graduated from high school in Mayfield. Susan Galbraith was presented with the Kentucky Outstanding Citizen Award for her work in solving Jessica's murder. 
In August of 2018, she passed away at the age of 58. So Haley Gray helped research this episode this week. Thank you so much, Haley. And one of the things she kind of linked us to was this uh, video on YouTube, these series of videos from Minority Focus. I highly, highly, highly encourage you to check these videos out. I went through a giant rabbit hole and watched several videos. It is incredibly, I just cannot understand how anybody in this case was convicted. I'm not, I don't know anybody's innocence or guilt, but I don't see how anyone had a fair trial. It is infuriating the amount, just like what we kind of went through, is the craziest stuff. They talked to Tamara Caldwell because she's no longer um, in prison. They talked to Burton. He's no longer in prison. And you hear them talk about they didn't know each other. None of these people knew each other. And Burton even claimed that when he went to court, like, for the trial, that was the first time he ever saw Quincy Cross. And there's, like, people corroborating that none of these people really knew each other or they knew somebody's name or they had heard of them from school, but there was no connection. The only evidence they had was these three girls saying all these people did this. And they changed their story a thousand times. It's so scary to think that seven years from now, I could say Mandy killed this person. She she killed them. And now Mandy has to fight for her life and prove that she didn't. Like, that's literally yeah. what happened. There's nothing that ever... I mean, what were you doing seven years ago today? Do you have any idea? Could you even come up with anything you were doing? How would you get yourself out of that? It's crazy. No. Yeah, you can't. And you're right. There is no physical evidence in this case that links any of these people to this murder directly. And like Melissa said, we don't know about anybody's guilt or innocence in this case, but there are definitely some major red flags that were with this investigation and during these trials. And yeah, it's, it is an absolutely infuriating because I feel like there's so many questions and you just don't know. I, I don't feel good about having any of these people behind bars for this because I don't feel like it was proven that they really had anything to do with it. Like you, that's how our justice system works. You have to really prove it. And, you know, yes, he was found guilty by a jury. Um, Personally, I don't think they had the evidence in this case to convict him of this crime. No, and they talked to, like I was saying, Tamara and Burton, and they told Tamara, hey, Burton, he is uh, he's going to testify against you. Like her attorneys are saying this. He was never going to. They tell her this, so she'll take the Alfred, peel, uh, um, Alfred plea. So of course she's going to take that. They're saying you're either going to go to prison for the rest of your life or you're going to get this small thing. We can't get you anything else. So she takes it. They tell him something. I don't even remember what they said. Oh, he thought that they were going to I'm very passionate about this case this is like my new most passionate case but they were going to go to trial he was ready for it he was like I didn't do anything and then right before they say hey I think you should take the Alfred plea you're going to go to prison forever so then he has to change like he just can't even believe what's going on I don't think they had great representation whatsoever I think they would definitely say that but in this um in this minority focus videos, like there's a series of them, they talk to Jessica's dad. Quincy's dad is sitting right next to him, and they're talking about how this this is wrong. This whole thing is wrong. They, sh you know, Quincy shouldn't have been convicted. There was just never anything. So now Quincy's in prison for the rest of his life, whether he's guilty or not. I don't know. I think the guy definitely deserves a new trial. But like Burton and Tamara, they can't get jobs. They can't get anything because it says they have Alfred pleas, which when you're looking for a job, looks like you doesn't say you're not guilty. You know, you've you've done something. Right. All these people's lives were ruined for nothing. And and poor Jessica, their family still doesn't know what happened to her. They don't believe Quincy did it. They don't believe any of these people did it. You're telling me like eight people were involved in this crime and nobody said anything until a MySpace page came up and somebody said, hey, I was I was there. It is a little sketchy and a very hard to believe. And But, you know, what I do find easy to believe is that these girls would make up a story to get reward money, okay? And so I'm not saying, like, that maybe they're, like, awful, terrible people. But you have to think at the time this happened, they were all very mm -hmm. young. And they – I there was multiple sources that Haley sent us that said that a lot of the people involved in this case – they maybe didn't have, you know, after they were evaluated, they maybe didn't have the highest IQs. I'm not saying that that means, you know, that they are just, they didn't have a clue what they were doing. But if you don't have the capacity to understand the consequences of certain things, such as going to the police and telling them this, like, 
massive lie so that you can get money. Well, yeah, I can see how that would happen. And, you know, if you have these two women who got together and created the story, so then they say, okay, we're both going to tell the same thing to the police. So they're really going to believe it, which is exactly what happened in this case. And they're thinking, we'll just collect the money. It's not our problem after that. And we can just get out scot-free and we'll get the reward money. And so I can see how these young girls would think, yeah, that sounds like a good idea and not really think through the consequences of what that would mean for the lives of all these other people that they were saying were involved in this. And yeah, it really is a very upsetting case. I'm totally with you that this is like my new one that I'm passionate about and I want to really look more into and, and learn everything I can. There was so much oh information. Gosh. Haley sent us a ton of research and a ton of sources that I started pouring through. And um, there's just so much out there. And especially as it gets into the little details of things that went wrong in this, in the investigation and in the trials and everything. Very fascinating case. Definitely check out some of the source links if you are interested in this one. There's so much good information. There's no way we could cover it all in one episode of the podcast. I no, feel like. not at all. And yeah, the minority focus videos, definitely, I would say, like, it kind of not dumbed it down because it wasn't a dumb thing whatsoever. But sometimes I'm, I'm a very visual person. <laughs> and uh, it helped me kind of understand who was who. And it's not flashy like Dateline, but it's long interviews with people that were directly involved and parents of them. It, it is just heartbreaking all the way around. I'm really glad we actually talked about the story, but it is an awful, awful story. But I hope that her family finds justice. It reminds me of the Angie Dodge story and how the wrong person was convicted. And then she helped fight and they they ended up finding who did it this just this past year. So I'm hoping for her family and for everyone's family, they all get the answers. They all get the truth. You know, whatever that is. Absolutely. Yeah. So sorry, we went on a very impassioned. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Yeah, I'm going to have a <laughs> headache after this. But yes. So thank you guys for sitting through that. Mandy, would you like to? Oh, wait, I'm going to let you say it. It's more fun when you say it. Okay. Melissa, would you like <laughs> to, turn, to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go? Yes. And if you're new with us, last thing before we go is basically just a silly little thing we do at the end to get over our impassioned speeches of which we only have limited information, but we still feel it deep in our bones. Please get me out of this. Just start. Okay, Melissa, this is a question that I think you will love because I think you'll have a lot of responses. <laughs> Okay, so the question is, what old person things do you do? So things that might be a little beyond your current age of a very young very. 29. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, the shorter list would be what young person things do I do? Because there's, I think, nothing on that list. So currently, I'm wearing my regular clothes, but I have a robe on over that. Is that an old person thing to do? <laughs> No, that's definitely an old person. <laughs> I'm also wearing socks. I'm always wearing socks. Um, I am very – oh, I follow weather people on Twitter. I feel like on Twitter makes me feel younger, but I'm really like following like 30 meteorologists. I have to know what the weather is all the time. Uh, it's very important. <laughs> I'm really obsessed with bedtimes now. I want to go to bed. Like I've I've gone to bed a few times at a like good time, like 1030, and I feel so much better. So now I'm like, I, it's, it's time to go. I got I to gotta go to sleep getting really obsessed with that. I have to pee in the middle of the night. I think that's more of like a male thing, but I have the same problem. I don't I don't like listening to things loud. My ears ring all the time. <laughs> Mine's like more like my medical <laughs> history. Um, I don't know. I don't I I feel like I am dying all the time. That's got to be something. Go ahead, Mandy. What old person things do you do? Do you any, do anything old? <laughs> I'm just going to get mad. Um, I think I do a um, few things that are like old people. <laughs> For example, I heat up my like <laughs> this is going to sound so so weird. Okay. So if I want to make oatmeal or anything like that, like I don't I mean maybe it's not that weird. I make it in a kettle, like I make hot water in a kettle, like that is <laughs> And then I'll use it to like put pour it over oatmeal in the morning or make tea. That's, like I, I think guess that's, that's not fancy. That weird I that's think that's you, yeah. That's what you use a kettle for. Yeah, but I feel like I don't ever walk into uh like any of my friends' homes and see kettles. Sitting you don't on have stones. fancy friends, Mandy. What can I tell you? <laughs> 
I guess I need to get some. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I do that. I'm kind of with you on the bedtime thing nowadays. I really do like to be in bed by a certain time. And I usually am. I'm usually at least in my bed under the covers and watching TV or just relaxing, looking at my phone no later than like 11. That's like my latest. I really hope to be in bed before 11 because that's – if I'm awake at 11, it's just – I'm already worried I'm not going to wake up feeling good the next day. So it's just a whole thing. So I'm with you on sleeping at reasonable times. I don't know of any other things I do that are really like old people things, though. I mean, other than just generally like not having patience. Yeah. Well, some people get more <laughs> patient with age. I am not one of those people. I feel like if you knocked like flip me over, I would just have like Werther's fall out of my pockets or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm embracing it. I love getting older and uh just because all the things I do become more socially acceptable, people just expect it from me now. They're like, she's definitely right. old. <laughs> so, okay. So the other question is, I have to think about this one a little bit. So maybe you have one first. What did you think was cool when you were younger that you uh, don't think is cool now? Like what things were you into that you no longer think are really cool? I mean, I don't know, but I feel like it was – a lot of things, everything yeah. that I thought was cool then is like not cool now. I feel like that's such a hard one to put to pick a specific thing because I feel like that's just kind of the way life works. Yeah. Like, you know, styles, like everything. Thought, yeah, like things that you thought were really hip and fun, you know, then like isn't cool now. Oh, here's a really good one. So when I was younger, even in my like early 20s, you know, you know, it's it's cool and hip to say the like current lingo like words oh, yeah. and phrases like ones i don't even like know skeet, a current skeet? one to use i don't know I don't. <laughs> yes yeah or like on fleek or whatever like any of those okay i used to be all about that i don't even remember which ones i used to say because that was like you know so long ago i don't remember like specifically which ones but those kinds of things i used to always talk like that and it just sounded so ridiculous now that i look back i'm like how did anyone ever take me seriously talking like Aww. that? I, I totally agree with you. I think I have – I do them very – I don't mean to do them ironically. Like I'm like, oh, yeah, your eyebrows are on fleek. But then eventually I start saying it and I'm like, oh, I sound so stupid because it is. it doesn't sound the same coming from somebody wearing a robe and drinking sleepy time tea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't. Um, what, what can I think of? What was cool whenever I was younger? Um, oh, like going places. <laughs> I used to love to do things. And like I used to go to concerts every Friday and Saturday night. I would stand in line to go to them at these local places. And I loved it. And I'd be out till late. And then I think we've talked about like going to dueling pianos, which I loved going to that kind of thing. In Me the middle too. of the week, what was I thinking? I should have been asleep. And so oh this my God. all goes back to being just... <laughs> really really old all the time I don't think I thought anything else was cool I mean I think I thought like everything my parents said was stupid so I think some stuff they say is stupid but most of it I think is a little bit better now it sounds a little better than whenever I was younger so I'm totally with you on concerts and I do like concerts still but it has to be the right kind like there's certain music I listen to that there's no way in heck I would go see live in concert now just because I know the crowd that would be there plus I don't like crowds at all yeah, uh, yeah. let's just start there so I like that. that's one old person thing that I also do I guess that goes back to the other question is that I really don't like to be in crowds I don't like it and I don't it's not so much the noise that bothers me but I don't like to be in confined spaces I don't like to be with shoulder to shoulder mm -mm, people I hate that. and I don't like to be around large groups of people that are like partying and Oof. drinking and stuff stuff like it makes me so uncomfortable and that didn't used to bother me you know I used to like you said I used to go out there and get in the middle of it and go have a good time but now I the last concert I went and saw was Michael Bublé that is nobody's getting crazy there okay <laughs> that should so, be on your old person thing to do totally <laughs> exactly this is perfect these these questions are like merging they together are. now but um but yeah I mean like I said and you know you know me I listen to a lot of music it is shocking and, but yeah there's there's some music I listen to that like I said I wouldn't go see them live just because it wouldn't I know that it wouldn't be my crowd and I wouldn't have a good time seeing them live I like to listen to them very loudly in my car when I'm by myself but I wouldn't go see live so yeah I will just stick to seeing symphony orchestras when they come to town because apparently that's, I, that's where I'm at in life now <laughs> when we uh when I got to see Weezer this year which was like the highlight of my year last year 
the, I was so excited because we had actual seats. So whenever everybody else was playing the other concerts, <laughs> I just sat. And then whenever it was their turn, I would stand up. And I was like, even halfway through, I was like, oh, I got to sit down. But it's just like a bunch of people like taking a bunch of Advil before they got there because they yeah. needed me. Like, everybody was so old. It was perfect. So much fun, though. Well, okay, Mandy. I think we are good for this week. What do you think? I think we've people have turned us on long ago. Uh, yeah, they well turned us they off. Have. I hope. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably. That's more <laughs> yes. Okay. So yeah, that's it for this week, you guys. If you check out the show notes, there is still a link in there to purchase tickets to the live show, which is now about a month away. This is more of a countdown for me and Melissa than it is for you guys. Yeah. I think. So it's just, just a reminder to myself that we only have about four weeks to go before that happens, and there are still tickets available. So there is a link in the show notes to that and we've mentioned crime con you guys know we'll be at crime con our code is mnm2020 if you want to use that to get 10 percent off your standard badge we would love to see you there and i think that is it for this week we'll have our patreon episode out for february by the end of february which by the way i was so excited to find out was 29 days and not 28 this year is it really going to change your life that much <laughs> i mean i feel like this time this month I need that extra yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. That's true. For Patreon, it's always helpful. It's yeah. Sneak one in there. Yeah. So other than that, I think that's it, guys. We will see you back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.